Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and today I am joined by brutally speaking host John Beatty. You guys know John. I know John. He wanted to talk about an album called Crisis by Alexis on Fire, which is an album that I actually hadn't really spent any time with before. So in kind of a reverse of the at the drive-in situation, I was the one who didn't know anything about the album, and John was here to inform me. We talk a lot about the lyrics on the album, we talk about the themes, and we talk a lot about us. So I'm not going to hold you guys back any further. Here's my chat with John Beatty about Crisis by Alexis on Fire. All right, and if you survive the intro just like you did, did I do that same shtick on the At The Drive-In episode? I think I did. Oh, well. Guys, my name's Daniel Terry, as it always is, and uh, with me tonight is John Beatty. John, how are you doing tonight, my friend? Good. I'm excited to be a part of the new venture uh, and talk about an album that has really resonated with me, especially as I've gotten older and found new ways to uh, take this record in lyrically. Yeah, the lyrics were one of the things that sort of sort of jumped out at me as they often do. I know that's kind of a <laughs> kind of a one trick pony thing with me at, at this particular stage. But uh, you know, this is kind of like the at the drive in episode in reverse. Whereas I'd been listening to the record forever, and Rance had only been listening to the record for two days. John's been listening to this record for a very long time, much longer than I have. I've only been listening for probably about a week or so since we started talking about it talking about doing an episode and figuring out what a good like starter to bring John on here would be and uh you pick crisis so tell me I guess number one why did you pick crisis so it's funny I think there are some bands and I think you and Rance kind of hit on it a couple of times with at the drive-in uh with other bands you had mentioned that came out around that same time where you are aware of who they are but CDs cost a lot of money sometimes so you you didn't necessarily want to invest in the wrong one and Alexis on Fire was one of those bands where a lot of people were like, oh, you like this band, so you'll love this band. And I kind of hated that. I kind of hate when people do that because I'm always like, too many people are telling me I should like this. So there's no way it can live up to the, the hype that everyone's putting on it. And it honestly, and I hate to sound like Chris Brown from fucking uh, Trapped here, but back in the days when I still use Pandora on like my iPhone like three or four, the song this could be anywhere in the world came on and i i didn't recognize it but like right out the gates even just the weird drum tones because i was like what is this this sounds like shit whoever recorded this these drums are just like loud and crashing and there's it just doesn't sound good so what the fuck is this and then the rest of it kind of comes in and i just really remember by the time dallas's clean vocals come in I was really like, wow, there's something about this band that I, I don't I don't know what it is, but it's it's speaking to me. It kind of has aggression. It has, you know, beautiful melodic vocals. It's it's interesting from a composition standpoint. And, you know, lyrically, it even kind of uh, made me take notice. I didn't necessarily know what lyrics I was hearing because it's the first time I'm hearing it, but they sounded important. And, you know, when you hear a song title like this could be anyone in the world and you see a, an album you know, called Crisis and this album cover with a dude with giant fucking hands and like you don't know what it is like just the whole package to take in in a matter of you know three four minutes for the first time it's it's quite a lot and I remember being like 
huh, I, I think I'm going to go check out this band now. So Pandora does work <laughs> in that capacity. But that was really where the beginning of my love affair with this record started was on a bus bus trip uh, to go into work when I had to take public transit and I used Pandora. And uh, that was probably a good maybe 12, 13 years ago. So that was your first actual introduction to Alexis on Fire then? 100%. So you'd never heard their previous material at all? No, I was more of a City and Color fan. Um, and it's okay. almost the, the same story of how I got into Glassjaw was it was through Head Automatica. And then I went and checked out Glassjaw because I was like, oh, I think I kind of understand this whiny dude's voice a little bit more and I can appreciate it in Daryl. And I uh, went back and checked out Worship and Tribute and fell in love with that record. Still don't really like the first record, but you guys talked about that on discography discussion. Yeah, we did. Us and Alfonso, actually. Yep. My first introduction to Alexis on Fire was actually through the first album, but that record blew me away because it was very, for lack of a better term, it was like the uh, quote-unquote emo that I liked. You had the pretty, like, melodic singing, but, like, back then it wasn't as pretty. It's not as good as, definitely not as good as it is on this album <laughs> because they had sort of had some time to get good, so to speak. So that first one, I think the first, the thing that I really fell in love with with Alexis on Fire was the, the harsh vocals because the way I described it to my wife one time in the car was... Yeah, it's like uh, it's like a thirteen-year-old kid doing his best Zayo impression, you know, <laughs> with that sort of higher-pitched, raspy sort of growl, and uh, and that was at a time where a lot of guys were doing more of that. Like they were either going for like the lower, like gutturals, uh, or they were going for like the the high-pitched sort of shrieking vocal. And this band sort of nailed it, I think, even from the very beginning on this record and even on the first one with sort of having that mid-range where like guys that are here just for the heavy are, are still going to get that but then the people that are here for like the more sort of emotional side of it the more lyrically dense side of it are going to get a lot out of it as well so yeah it was definitely a band that their vocals sort of attracted me and, and what I thought was interesting too is like that first Alexis on Fire record is so like it sounds so much more like I don't know if indie's the right word to use for it <laughs> It does. Uh, I know what you mean. But yeah, I don't. I don't want to just use the word emo for it. Adolescent. It sounds adolescent. adolescent. That it. That's it. That's perfect. It sounded much more youthful. And on Crisis, it sounds a lot more. Don't say mature. Don't say mature. It sounds a lot more sort of rock. You know what I mean? That point where this band. We had a big discussion about this in the Discord server recently about how Canadian bands tend to get pushed very hard in Canada. And so, like, Alexis on Fire will come to the United States and they'll play to, like, you know, a 600-cap room or, you know, something like that. And then uh, they go to Canada and they're playing to, like, you know, gigantic festival-sized crowds. And so, like, I can totally understand the transition because I will admit when I first popped this record on, I did not listen to it when it first came out. But whenever I originally popped it on for the first time, I was like, okay... So very much, I think one of the last bands that I covered on discography discussion was Atreyu. And it sort of it sort of unlocked a little bit of a key for me going into this record. I was like, this is why John picked, picked this, because it reminds me of sort of what Atreyu was doing in, in sort of incorporating more general rock sort of song structures into their overall sound. And it's not, I'm not trying to say that like, 
Alexis on Fire invented the <laughs> the sing scream dynamic in 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 hardcore or metalcore. Even though I don't think that really that description really fits this band. But the focus on hard rock just makes so much sense when you're considering that they were essentially being pushed to be on general rock radio, which is something that where I grew up didn't really you still couldn't get a band like that with with harsh vocals as sort of their main attraction. You didn't really get that on the radio. And I so I guess what I'm trying to say is Canadian radio must be vastly more entertaining than uh <laughs> At least Midwestern alternative rock radio. I mean, I would love it if I could turn on Canadian radio and or my radio, I guess, and hear Biffy Clyro and, you know, maybe like Billy Talent and stuff like that. Like that probably isn't necessarily just Canadian, but I feel like I don't know. I feel like that's I feel like if you look at a lot of those bands or even, you know, bands sort of of the same era of like, you know, the Hives or, you know, the Strokes and stuff like that. A lot of these bands that were sort of pigeonholed into one thing. And I think the interesting thing about all those bands is they were always kind of the sum of their parts. And I think with Alexis on Fire, it's like, you know, I remember talking to Wade, uh, their guitar player for my show and him kind of talking about how he wanted to do sort of like an Americana record and then he goes you know it's funny one of the biggest kind of folk indie americana artists is a canadian from my band in city and color and dallas <laughs> and it's one of those things where i i just kind of feel like they're more accepting maybe of different ideas different ways to to do something and you know to kind of bring it back onto this record like it's just i think it can't be understated enough as i as i get older the fact that you literally have three different vocalists on this. You have Wade, the guitar player, who's kind of that in-between harsh vocal. Then you have Dallas with the pretty, pretty cleans and stuff like that. And you have George, who's kind of the straight-ahead, you know, aggressive, Zeo-ish kind of sound. And there's not a band that can do that, at least not just on record. And I think that's what separates this band from a lot, is that they utilize that as a strength throughout their whole discography. And they even do it sonically with songs, like especially on Crisis. As I've gotten older with this record, it, it's, you know, I used to be all about the the more aggressive ones, you know, and, and, you know, like Mailbox Arson and stuff like that. And just kind of the aggression of like behind it. But now as I'm like nearing 40, like I'll say for the last like three months, uh, it's more of kind of the, the, no pun intended, kind of the slow burn songs, like To a Friend, Rough Hands. Like Rough Hands is a song I've been listening to as a single song probably at least i'll get stuck on it for like an hour and i'm just like picking apart like the little piano notes behind it like the complimentary melodies and you know picking apart uh the guitar lines and, and what's everything doing and and honestly it's it's really just taken a hold of me and it's why i picked this record was because of the lyrics to to rough hands like it's uh, you know and i guess we'll kind of start you know kind of the process of like you know some of the storytelling or, or what does this record mean to me you know when we'll kind of go back to you know this this could be anywhere in the world like it, literally the opening line this town has its claws buried in my neck this town it takes out lies without mercy without hate and when i was younger it reminded me of growing up in kalamazoo michigan this tiny little fucking city and that it just would kind of keep people like any if you had aspirations to do anything bigger beyond where you lived kalamazoo is like the, to me the antithesis of like you either get the fuck out and you succeed and you go do shit or you're for, you're a lifer and you never do anything more than you live there and you still hang out with all your high school people that you knew and 
that, that wasn't my life and i just kind of i feel like when i listen to that song initially and even still that's sort of what it reminds me of is you know that place kalamazoo is my place for you it could be whatever for anyone listening that's where it could be this could be anywhere in the world anywhere in the world that makes you feel that way um interestingly as i was listening to this record the last week or so knowing we were going to do this it really kind of took on a different meaning to me uh this time I, I was thinking and a lot about you know this record i was kind of thinking about you know like the line the the streets are in distress um thinking about when we had the riots here uh in grand rapids for the the george floyd stuff and you know literally watching people tear up this like our downtown and and all that and just kind of over you know differences of what's going on um you know I, i'm thinking you know of the line two the lineup seems endless underneath the salvation signs like we are the dead ones we are the lost cause we are the bend before the break like to me when i listen to that now years and years later of listening to this record it now takes on almost the same like aftermath of of these riots based on you know equality for freedom and and for you know racial racial justices and so forth and i know that's not potentially what this was written about but i think that's the brilliance of this record is it's it has been able to morph and change with me personally based on different things i've gone through i mean i just gave you two examples of what this song used to mean to me and how i'm interpreting it now and grown with it isn't it crazy how a song will sort of stick with you like an article of clothing or an old hat or an old pair of shoes or something and you can sort of wear those things and put them on to apply to so many different situations in your life and the reason that you come back to those things is because they are reliable right yeah um, or you have specific memories associated with those objects in this case yeah a hundred percent it's the songs and it's it's sort of for me anyway and i'm not going to go into my entire resume like i did on the last episode but you know i don't have the personal experience with this record like john does but one of the songs that sort of stuck out to me was a song called boiled frogs and it's one of those songs that like have you ever established like a new friendship i mean it's kind of like not not that different than your and my friendship john where like good relationships or good friendships are the type that feel like they've always been there mm -hmm. right and boiled frogs was sort of that in a song for me just because the song starts off it says a man sits at his desk one year from retirement and he's up for review not quite sure what to do each passing year the workload grows and that absolutely like in reference to sort of what i had been talking about on the redeemer episode it was funny how this song sort of just like almost in a way continued <laughs> continued along those same lines as i transitioned out of redeemer and into this record to get ready for this episode that song just sort of stuck out there like is different than the rest you know and just like i'm always wishing i'm always wishing too late for things to go my way it always ends up the same count your blessings and i was like holy crap that song like if i if i could have referenced that song in that episode it would have been a better episode um <laughs> because i mean it was it was so right on you know like just sort of dissatisfaction in the workplace which i think we can all relate to you know like i just got promoted at work which is super cool but like there there's still those sort of feelings of like in a year am i going to just be running in the same sort of the same race you know like sort of 
pulling the same punches, making the same moves, but ultimately just spending my life like making somebody else money. You know, and so that's that's really what I got out of that song, and it was like a, a huge standout for me. Well, I think the interesting thing about that song, and and again, it, this this album has done this to me so many times, where you know maybe I'll I'll fixate on like the first verse, and I'm like, oh, I really resonate with that. Lately, it's been the second verse, and I and what really brought me to appreciate this song a lot differently, and actually paying more attention to the the, the latter half of it, is. Dallas doing an acoustic cover of this uh, as City in Color, and they recently released it uh, on Dino Moan Records as like a thing. Because the only way you could get it for the longest time was on like YouTube. <laughs> and that's interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's so it it's it's obviously done more like City in Color, like more like the sometimes kind of style, like just acoustic guitar and Dallas. But it was really kind of the line of safe and monotony, so safe day after day, and it's. It's kind of funny to think about how we do that. I think not even just in work life, which is kind of this, but it's just sort of we play the safe route because we know what to expect. Like there's there's safety and monotony and it's kind of going away from that. That is where it gets kind of scary. Um, And, you know, it. It's also kind of funny because, like, I feel like the line I resonated with the most in it because of that is in the staying safe part is is sort of the foretelling of what happens to you, which is uh, between the light and shallow waves is where I'm going to die. Like that's that's the safe spot of when you if you go into water, right in the the, the shallow area. Like, fuck it. What what do you have? Like, go go venture out. Go see some shit. Go do something choose an adventurous life do something more do something that gets you out of your safe space because that's where where living starts happening and it sounds so it sounds so fucking stupid to be like it took a song for me to kind of think about that but it's like like i said this i started listening to this record when i was in my mid-20s and i'm almost 40 now and it's it's interesting to think about how different i thought of things in those different transitional parts of my life and I think that's why I constantly come back to this record because it, it, like you said, it feels kind of more focused. It feels more adult, it, you know, the kind of adolescence behind it. It's still sort of there, but it's more focused. It's more thinking of big pictures, bigger picture ideas, bigger concepts, bigger life impacts for yourself and others. And I mean, that's, that's always gonna be timeless, no matter who you, or what you're singing about. If you kind of stick to those things, it's going to resonate no matter how old you are or where it hits you in life. And actually, it'll probably be more so because you have those experiences that you can then draw back to and from and think about how far you've come, hopefully. Well, and what I think is really interesting about it, like with being a band that sounds like this, is a lot of the bands that play this style of music, the mix-up of sort of hardcore screaming with like melodic vocals and sort of like hard rock song structures, what you usually end up getting is very like sort of me-focused, like more almost more selfish lyrics. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Some of my favorite songs are very immature, you know, for reference, like the first Glassjaw record that, <laughs> that John mentioned. A very, very, very selfish, immature record, but I love it. But with this record, it's almost like there's sort of like a little bit of like almost a social obligation 
with these lyrics. Maybe it's not an obligation. Maybe that's not the word to say it. And it's not necessarily socially conscious in the in the buzzword, trigger word uh, sort of sense. But kind of a, like, I like it whenever bands sort of use an experience, describe it, and then sometimes, you know, s- sort of portray, like, a message like we were talking about with, with Boiled Frogs, especially, was that just, like, you know, go out an adventure, do something that's do something that's uncomfortable, something that's strange or whatever. Whereas, like, you know, just a couple of records ago, this band was like, this is a 44 caliber love letter straight from my heart. You know what I mean? Like, like, like. And, and the word I'm trying to avoid using is maturity, but I think that applies in this case too. Maybe, maybe DFT's Dungeons is the new podcast where I use the word maturity all the time. I don't know, but <laughs> but the lyrics here were they, they were deeper, and you know, I always find myself sort of drawn to records like this because, like, I'm a little bit of a snob as far as like sometimes the record might be perfectly good and have great lyrics or whatever, but I'll be snobby because like I'm like, well, you know, it's not like they did anything that original. You know, or it's not like they did anything. And so, like, that that's the only, like, real criticism I have on this record is that it's not necessarily different than what you would get from another band that year. But lyrically is where this guy really, really, really shines, which is why we've sort of been focusing more on <laughs> more on lyrics. Because, yeah, I could sit there and be like, well, this riff sounds like this band. And I, you know, oh. used to be on another podcast where I would do just that. I'm definitely going to say uh, a day to remember totally ripped off uh crisis the intro riff to their uh paranoia song that's like the exact same intro riff interesting even like the the like chords that play over that like yeah it's the same so this might be kind of a stupid question but has this record ever helped you overcome any type of personal crisis um or at least you related it to it i'm not saying it had to like I listened to this record and then all the problems I had just went right away. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny. Like I've really, in light of some some issues kind of going on in, in a work situation uh, that I have removed myself from since, um, it's kind of interesting. Like, you know, the song uh, Keep It On Wax, you know, with sort of being, you know, the only thing cheap to you is your friends. Um, I've kind of stumbled across this idea of transactional relationships that I've been thinking a lot a lot more about. And when you work in a bar industry, and I'll say more when you work at a dive bar or you go to dive bars, the the thing that's great about them is this this personal relationship between the patrons that have been there, your regulars and your bartenders and your staff of the bar. It's not a normal relationship. It it feels almost like a secondary family. And that can be something that really endears you to those environments. Like I do. I love, that's what I love about those things because they have so much character and, and it's a no bullshit kind of area. When you go into these places, like what you see is what you get. And those are the same kind of people and attitudes. However, working in a bar, you see people, sometimes push themselves beyond their limits of, of what they can handle in, you know, liquor or whatever, either they're drinking to forget drinking, to get run away from something, drinking to celebrate something. And it's a, it's almost a razor's edge between celebrating something and then it becoming a problem. And the thing that I kind of started to notice is that, especially when you're sober, which is something I've been doing like this whole month, uh, is, people will kind of turn on you on the drop of a dime because they're hammered and you're not and you're calling them out on their bullshit 
and they don't see it that way because obviously they're inebriated and it's funny to see how people will then that you are your friends and that you know you you have all these these close uh ties to and all these things it's interesting to then see them turn on you and then be like well i fucking pay your bills and i fucking tip you real well you should be doing and it's like no 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 if that's the case get the fuck out don't ever talk to me don't need your fucking money i'm not a whore like it's interesting to watch that snap of people who you think are your friends all of a sudden it comes down to money and now all of a sudden it's a transactional relationship and there are so many things that i've realized apply to that same filter you know almost every relationship is transactional in some capacity but it's funny that there's another phrase i've been hearing lately that also kind of resonates and keeps me thinking of to keep it on wax which is and kind of the even rough hands as well is just kind of this this whole thing of you know you can be the hero of your story but you're the villain in somebody else's and it's all about perspective and it's all about the experiences and how you see them and how other people see you and it's so funny because keep it on wax like i kind of realized that it's just you know i'm thinking of the line too you can always make new friends but it's not always worth as much and again going back to people treating me like shit and people i work with like shit because of not us and it's like there's something clearly wrong with you that you're not dealing with and i can't help you and neither will alcohol and neither will these things you just have to deal with these fucking things on your own and people aren't willing to hear that a lot of times and so i would kind of go to keep it on wax personally and just kind of be like it's yeah you know what go find another friend if i'm if i'm replaceable go find another friend it's not worth as much and i promise you that because i'm i'm me and i'm the only me that there is so if you had value or you found value in something that i brought to your life it's not going to be replaced by somebody else because you can only get it through me that authentic personal experience of of me and we all offer that i mean and that one of the one of the things that you said about how you're the hero in your own story but the villain is someone else's dude i still struggle with that like with like with that concept you know that that idea of like because we want to be that protagonist we want to be that guy that sort of sort of swoops in and saves the day and everybody likes or you're well liked you know and then like for me personally that could become so fragile because as soon as i hear you know like if i'm at work or something and uh just like just recently the other day i like was really irritated that everybody was doing something that i thought was wrong and i didn't like yell at anybody but i was like noticeably flustered and and noticeably irritated and then you know for the rest of the week i you know it, it has evolved into oh yeah that dude got super mad and like snapped and started yelling at everybody and you know and it's one of those it's like man that that stuff is not <laughs> that that's not what happened i don't understand the the sort of everybody sort of getting together and deciding something that's true or something that isn't true is true and like all sort of like making this pact where they, they all agree on it like oh this happened and from my perspective i'm like yeah but i'm supposed to be like the good guy or whatever and even whenever i have done the right thing it seems like people are just not you know they're like no we're gonna go ahead and just say you did the wrong thing because that just makes the story run better and I know that's not exactly the same thing that you're talking about here with Keep It On Wax, but it is sort of something that I that, that I kind of pull from that, where 
you know, you you are absolutely like always thinking that you're the one, you're, you're the center point, you're the you're, you're the one that people are sort of coming back for, or that you think that they're as invested in you as maybe you are invested in them. But yeah, no, that's good. What other songs do we have that I'm not doing a track by track, but no, no, for sure. Um, you know, I'm gonna I want to talk a little bit more about Rough Hands because it's, it's really the catalyst of why I wanted to talk about this record. And like I said, it's one that I just keep going back to, and you know, to get kind of really, really real uh, about you know some of it. It's a uh, you know being with my significant other for you know going on almost 13 years now and being married for almost seven. You know, I'm. This kind of reads. I'll kind of infuse a little bit of humor. I think there's always that little bit of us that's like high fidelity where you go back through your old relationships and you kind of think about like, could that have worked in a different scenario? What did I do wrong or, you know, whatever. And we kind of romanticize these things because we kind of forget the, maybe the terribleness of the relationship itself and why it was kind of doomed and failed in the first place. Especially once you have more distance behind it because you we don't tend to remember the bad things. We only remember the good things when we look back on things or we try to, um, especially if you want to believe in the good in, of people. Um, but it's interesting because as I listen to this song a lot more now and especially kind of the life, the unconventional life that I guess I kind of live, you know, of, of not having a normal nine to five, you know, working in a bar, you know, that keeps me away doing a podcast, which also takes up more of my free time. And I sometimes, like even tonight, like, you know, doing this at an orientation and a new, a new bar gig and, you know, my wife's trying to make plans and I and she's tried to talk to me all day today and I've just been like doing that. I went and worked uh, my actual job that I do and, you know, the opening line of, you know, uh, was I left behind? Someone tell me, tell me I survived and don't look so surprised that I'm home, but just for tonight with rough hands and sore eyes, don't speak. I'm tired. So let's just live this lie. And it really makes me think about do we do we lie to ourselves about the relationships that we're in? You know, I'm going to say that, like, is my relationship perfect? No, there are things that I wish at times I could I could change about it, uh, about my my significant other, about myself even. And I sometimes come to the conclusion that, you know, we don't get to live the perfect life we don't have the perfect relationships that at some point you have to kind of make some sacrifices along the way of, of what you're quote unquote looking for and by that i mean like you know if i were to say like you know i want like i wish my wife liked movies she doesn't i wish my wife liked some of like video games i wish she liked some of the other things that i like doing and she doesn't but then i think to myself i had someone who liked all of those same things and guess what it didn't fucking work and it makes me feel sad for her at times where, you know, I'm like, I'm going to be locked away doing this thing because it's it's something I like. It's a hobby I have. But what is it costing me? Is it costing me something I literally can't see right now? Is it going to cost something down the road? Is she going to her friends and, and saying, I wish she would give up this podcast? I wish she would not do this. And, you know, I know that comes back to more of us communicating. And I know we have these conversations. So I know it's it's not that bad. I know it's not to that level. But these are things that in my overactive mind, these are things I think of because I have, I never feel like I'm good enough for anybody. And, you know, I definitely know with, with my wife, I know I, I fucking married up. Like, 
not everyone has the luxury of being with someone who is basically financially stable for almost the both of you so that I can kind of just float around and do whatever the fuck I want. But it becomes this thing where, you know, I also look at some of the other, the other parts of it where I feel like this song is reflecting on past relationships, you know, where George is talking about, she says, I swear too much. She says a lot of things. Well, I'd swear every other word if I could for her, I'll make an attempt. And it's talking about how, you know, and especially toward the end of the song, at the end where, you know, he's and, and fucking, it fucking gets me every time, you know, him saying, I'm not saying she's my last. I'm just saying she could have been. It doesn't matter how rough these hands get because it doesn't matter because I'm not her man. And it makes me think about losing my wife to things. It makes me think about past relationships that I've had, you know, the, you know, the line before that, you know. One day her clothes are on my floor, the next day empty bottles. Like, I've been that fucking dude. Like, this this song in particular, just as I get older and as I get further into my marriage and I get older and, you know, I, I have friends who are still dating that are, are you know, in, in our age range. And I just kind of, I, I feel envious at times because I'm like, oh, it's the excitement of something new. But then I also think about it and I'm like, fuck do i have to offer someone i'm almost 40 like i don't have a career i don't have shit like what do i have to offer someone why would someone even want to be with me why does my wife even want to be with me and it's in thinking about i guess the emotional graveyard we leave behind of past relationships as well of realizing that it's like i could want for all of these things and i had them and other people and it doesn't fucking matter because I'm not with them. I chose to be with this person and you can't give up on it and you have to figure out a way to make it fucking work because otherwise you're going to have the things where it doesn't fucking matter what I think anymore because she's not not with me. And I know that's that's a lot. <laughs> and it's also the refrain that's kind of tucked away, you know, two people, too damaged, too much, too late. And I've been thinking a lot about that line of just what does it mean? Like how how do I take that into to my relationship with my wife? And like I said, this this one song, I just I get stuck on for hours um, and I always end up crying toward the end of it because I, I just I don't know. I've I've had friends that have passed away that were in relationships with my friends still and, and seeing what that's done to people. And it's it's a lot. It, it's a lot uh, to feel like you're, you're there, but also not there at the same time. And it's because you're trying to do something that you're passionate about or that you're trying to be there for the other person, but maybe you're failing and you just don't realize it at the time. Sorry, that was all over the place. No, that's good. No, I mean, that's the, that's sort of the whole, you know, music is memories sort of thing. And it's not even necessarily just memories either, because having that sort of, sort of mindset of wondering, like, at what point is, at what point is my bullshit too much? right like like that what what is there what is that breaking point you know like for me it was like i'm gonna support my family right but i'm also gonna like mouth off to people uh in that, that pay me <laughs> you know what i mean or 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 sort of um lose lose track of what i'm doing like become so sort of you know i remember because dude i remember you know if you talk about like responsibility and stuff and sort of prioritization which is what i think I kind of struggle with in that regard. Dude, you remember all those times, like it'd be like a brutally speaking interview and I'd be all like, Hey man, I, I can't make this one. And you're like, all right, cool. And then I would like 
uh, like an hour later, I would text you and be all like, yeah, dude, you know what? Actually, I think I can make it. You know, like <laughs> there were a couple of those that I would and I would just like literally drive home on my lunch break from work. And like the interview took as long as the interview took. Right. And so luckily on that podcast, they're not as long and drawn out as some of mine are. But it is uh, it is sort of telling of the whole like I, I sort of put my job on the line there you know, doing that. And I think at one point I did an interview in the lunchroom at, uh, at a job and it, it's sort of that, that, that like, at what point, you know, because that, that seems funny and that seems like, like cool podcast guy stuff. Like, Oh yeah, dude, these guys are die hard. They'll do it. You know, I remember you doing an interview with, uh, was it, uh, Lejean from seven dust in like a, in like a closet. I, I, I had done a right? few. Uh, it was it, the one I did like in the closet. Closet was uh, was uh, Mark from uh, Mark Tremonti. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, and like it's all like cool podcast guy stuff, but at the same time, like if that would have gone south, right? Then the then the Norma Jean episode would have been longer with with more jobs. Uh, you know, it would have just been like at some point, it's like. You may not have seen that for what it is, but it's like, no, dude, you're prioritizing your your hobby over your full time job, and when your family depends on your full time job, yeah, you know, it, it suddenly it suddenly becomes a lot less like whimsical <laughs> and a lot less funny. It's a lot more like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like, why would you do something like that? And I mean, honestly, I haven't even faced a lot of those questions until this year. Yeah, you know where I like really kind of started to reevaluate like how I was doing things and how I was doing these podcasts and you know sort of what it meant. So like yeah, I mean a song like Rough Hands is is absolutely sort of um it can definitely if you if you're trying to ignore these types of feelings or <laughs> asking yourself these types of questions, this song's gonna absolutely rip that scab right off. Oh yeah, again this is the perfect complement of all three vocalists together on one track being able to do it you know to where it, it kind of i think there's something so so innately gorgeous about this really pretty arrangement of like these like really shimmering you know leads and so forth that typically you wouldn't expect someone to kind of scream over and it's it's so it's the juxtaposition of it i think is is so it just it's so enamoring to listen to and like I said, like when you start, when you have good headphones or whatever, and you're just kind of really getting lost in it, like just the, even that slow droning, and then here come the little piano notes behind it. And then, you know, the guitar in it. And it just, it, it feels like it took its time and to make, I mean, I know there's like the bonus track version of this record where there's, there's two other songs after this, but to me, you know, with, with the way this album closes, uh, with to a friend and and uh, rough hands, it's it's such a somber ending to the record, and it's one of those like I used to love the first half of the record the most, and now I think as I'm getting older, I think I kind of love the mo the more depressing part of the record more <laughs> because I think I I just have I have more life experiences where I, I resonate more with it whereas when i first started listening to this I, I didn't have those those things those thoughts those those faint those life experiences to kind of pull from to make me resonate with this more and like i said that's why i just kind of go back to this record 
and and think about these these things and how it relates to me uh, in my life. And you know, like I said, almost being forty, it's like you know, I could go a couple of different ways where I could be like, all right, I've, I've essentially learned how to live a life where I've shucked all responsibilities for yeah. most of my life. I don't have kids, like you know, and you know, I have a, a really awesome life um, that I've worked hard for. Um, and I know that's that's the hard thing to, to sometimes understand when you're in a in a relationship is just, you know excuse me is I think the hard part is is everyone kind of assumes and you know you each have each other's backs that's what a marriage is it, it's a it's not one and the other just takes care of the other person you you lean on each other you know until death do you part sickness and health and all those kind of things that you say during your vows if you have to say them um, and it becomes one of those things where you know, I was, it's funny, I was I'm reading this book right now uh, about the Wu-Tang making their secret record and, you know, basically making it and selling it for like a million dollars or millions of dollars. And uh, this this idea of a single, single copy thing, art ver is what makes art art, why is it valuable? What makes music and other things devalued? And I've been kind of working through this concept uh, quite a bit lately, and it kind of goes hand in hand with the transactional relationships kind of thing as well. Uh, but the monetization of things and how we, we constantly live our lives where we are trying to find some sort of value in something. You know, I was thinking about when I threw, when I got a dumpster and threw away a bunch of shit out of my house, that at times my wife would be like, well, hold on, is that worth anything? We could give that to so-and-so. And I'm like, no, the point of getting a fucking dumpster is to throw shit away. Like, we have become so engrossed with with the value of something that we have essentially even assigned value to something that we've found valueless. It's been sitting in our house for however long it has been. We don't care about it. We haven't thought about it. But it is until you go to throw away because of shows like Antique Roadshow. Well, that could be worth something. And that this... crumbled up newspaper might be from a year that was really valuable and had a misprint in it. Yep. Sure, but then I also have been thinking about how we we also try to monetize some of the worst things that have ever happened to us. You know, even if it's nothing more than, you know, for likes or whatever, you know, there's value in that. Um, and so I, I, I don't know, as I kind of listen to this record again, you know, I, I find more value in it as an adult, as someone in my almost 40s, than I did at 26 or 27 when I found this record. And... I think because of that, it's it's so valuable to me. It's it's irreplaceable. Like there's there's nothing that I would give this record up for because of what I feel like it has taught me as a person moving forward. Not only in my 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 marriage, but in my personal relationships and just me as a person. And to me, I think that's that's the value of music. And that was the other part of the book um, that I'm kind of working through is you know, talking about music having value. At what point did we devalue music? And the part that they kind of kept coming up with is because there's, you know, unlike a piece of art where it's a one of one, it's the only one in existence. Music is however many it's sold. You can get it, I can get it. And we didn't have to do anything to get it anymore because we can literally go to our phones and get it and go meh and get rid of it. We didn't have to invest any actual equity into going somewhere to get it we didn't have to spend hard-earned money to get something and i feel like because of that it talks about how 
we don't value these things when you don't have to put in any work or effort. And it's actually something, you know, kind of speaking to Norma Jean, Corey and I have been talking about, which is everyone wants everything fucking handed them now. Like everyone has to do all these behind the scenes things. Everyone has to, you know, wants to know what this lyric means, what this means, what, you know, show me the you making this record, give me access to everything, but I'm not paying you for it. So I don't, there's no value there. And it's like, whatever happened to taking your time with something and letting it unfold and you figuring out what it means to you. And that's what this record has done over the 13 years I've been listening to it. Yeah, I was going to, I was going <laughs> to chime in with like something clever or witty there, but, uh, I think, uh, I think you more or less hit the nail on the head, you know, especially, especially with, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Let me see behind the scenes. Let me see what this is. Let me see what that is. You know, let me, why, why did you, why did you make this particular pick scrape on, on this song? And, you know, why did you, why did you do, you know, or, or what was it like in this, you know, and I almost feel like that, that sort of overlaps into what we do a little bit too with, with like interviews and stuff. And um, one of the things I like about what what you do, John, on Brutally Speaking is having sort of just that human conversation with somebody of like a, some of those interviews I've, I've joked before that like it's almost like you, if I would just imagine John sitting down at like a, an airport or something and they're just like waiting for a flight and sit down and be like, oh, hey, what's up? Yeah, not much. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know. And, and how, you know, at least whenever I was younger, you could have an extended conversation with somebody in a public place like that. But what I like about that is that it's it has that sort of human element and sort of removes that whole, like, let me try to either, A, get you to say something that will make me, like, like that will give me a boost, you know, mm. like I get popular off of what you said. Or, you know, you, even that sort of, like, where, where people will get, like, a little bit too personal. And, I'm like, I'm almost worried that, like, I'll end up getting accused of that on this. Like whenever I have a, a band member or a musician on and I'm like, so uh, what was your biggest struggle when you were recording this record, you know, or something like that. Um, although they're probably going to be more stoked to, to answer something like that versus a, you know, yeah, man, uh, behind the scenes, what does this mean? I want this, the exclusive right to this, you know, uh, this story that you told or, um, yeah, no, like I'm, I'm kind of right on uh, as far as that mindset because I think even as podcasters, we sometimes deal with that. Like, how many times have you done a, a podcast and somebody will comment like, "Hey, you forgot to mention this." Yeah, that's why or I you don't... forgot. You know, like, or or you need to, you know, you need to have me come on your show to uh, to talk about this because I would do it better than you. <laughs> you know, uh, and the reason for that is because you know, like, sort of what you were saying about like value you know in a certain sense it's like instead of just like enjoying the thing it's like well no it's it's valueless enough to me to where i will actually step in and offer myself as somebody that can fix it you know um kind of a huge jump from where we started but that's what i like about this format is i don't really have one yet and i'm not not necessarily out to to find it anytime soon well i think that's the interesting thing about this is and I think it is the theme, even though it's not a, a quote-unquote consistent thing you can put your finger on with your show, is it's people finding their way through being fans of music and what is what does an album or a song or a collection of songs mean to you? What does it evoke? And I think you can't tell anyone how how they feel. But, you know, you know, it, it's like it's almost the reverse of what I just said. You know, where it's like, you know, everyone wants to know what do these lyrics mean. Sit with it figure out what it means to you 
you know, something else that you know, I know Corey and a lot of the people we've talked to have said is, you know, there's what I, when I wrote this song, when I wrote these lyrics, this is what I was going through. But now that it's done and it's out to all of you, it doesn't mean that anymore. It can mean literally whatever anyone associates with it. And we're all right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I love lyrical analysis. Like I, I like to know what songs mean, but uh, like I'd sort of had mentioned in the at the drive-in episode, I don't necessarily care what the actual quote unquote origin story is, Yeah, you know, behind it. I'm just like really interested to see if the interpretation that I got out of it was anywhere close <laughs> you know to what the artist actually intended it's a fun sort of compare and contrast sort of thing but at the end of the day like you're gonna associate your own memories with songs um they're gonna they're gonna stick with you and you're gonna have your own sort of personal history hammered out i think that you know something that we'll probably start seeing in the future is like dude at people's funerals and stuff people will have already made a playlist you know of like Ugh. and maybe people do that now but like the, the people will have sort of a playlist of like these were very important events in my life were associated with these songs i mean i'm probably going to do it hopefully i don't have to do it anytime soon but you know you know it's it's i know potentially people listening will laugh and, and you know it, it's not laughing at the the sentiment i'm about to say but about who it is and, and why like now i have this attachment to it but when my uncle had passed away, it was it was so sporadic and quick um, that, you know, I had to fly back home and I hadn't been, I only go home now for funerals, uh, essentially. And I tentatively will have two more and then pretty much I'll never go back to where I grew up and was born because I have no reason to. But it was, you know, they were playing some five finger death punch because that was like a, a band my uncle loved. And to hear some of their kind of more ballady type songs like they're big enough that i'll still hear them and passing at different places and like i was working at the bar one day and i don't even remember what the fuck i don't remember the song but as soon as i hear it i'm like oh yeah, that's it and i just kind of got all fucking choked up because it took me right back to being at my uncle's funeral with all my family and all that kind of stuff and and you know it was this epiphany of having my parents sitting in front of me and then my grandparents who had been divorced almost i think the entirety of my my life sitting kind of in, on either side of them and I had this epiphany that, you know, barring anything drastic happening, these are the next four deaths that are going to, like, change my life. Like, the first two with my grandparents, whenever they go, I have no, I don't technically have a tie to my home anymore where I grew up. When my parents go, I have nobody. Like, I'll still have my dad's side of the family, but, like, most of my mom's family, they're gone. My dad, like, I have my aunts and uncles, but I barely see them now as it is because we just don't live near each other and we're, you know, living life. And that's a that's a really it's a really kind of it can be a very dark thought to have where you're like, well, one of my parents are gone. Fuck it. What do I have to live for? I have nobody. I mean, I have my wife and that's us. That's it. Thanks. Five finger death punch. That's all I think of. Now when I hear you. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> man, I guess I haven't been to a funeral in a long time. You're absolutely right, though. You know, just sort of having to sort of be aware of certain things, but maybe they don't necessarily hit you right away. Or maybe you did see it when you were sitting there, you know. I'm the kind of person that would be flying home and then be like, oh, the next time I come back here, like one of those people will will not be there, you know? Yeah. That's tough. I mean, it's, it's the hard, it's the part of getting older that I don't think we, we think about a lot. And, you know, I, I will speak for me uh, as someone like 
it's sort of funny when I went to therapy and, and you know, you're kind of doing all the preliminary, you know, talking about things that you're, you're going through and the various relationships that you have um, that get brought up. And your therapist goes, well, what was the resolution with that? How did, how did that, how did you solve things with that person? And I'm like, oh, that person's dead. That person died. That person mm. died. And it's like, you know, I started with, you know, my grandfather on my dad's side, you know, passing away when I was like, I don't even have any memories of him. My brother passing away when I was two, but I have no memories of him. And just like, I'm going through all these people, friends, even like, got a phone call when I came back from my uncle's wedding or my uncle's funeral. Hey, one of your like old coworkers and friends that we just saw like a month or so ago. And I was just texting with like two days before they're dead, randomly died. And they're like four years younger than me. And it's like, it's one of those where she was like, you know, you've dealt with so much death in your life that you just understand it's going to happen and you deal with it. And you understand that like, I don't, I'm not promised tomorrow. Like no one is not everyone comes to that same conclusion that quickly it usually takes something like a parent you know dying or passing away or a child or whatever uh for people to really have that happen and even then i think we we do sort of what you said it wouldn't hit me until later because something i realized that we do is we're not set up here in the states to grieve we're dealt with okay i gotta hurry up and let my job know i gotta hurry up and let someone know that i'm not gonna be there and they can't count on me for this couple of days now i have to make all the financial plans to get wherever the fuck i need to go then get there hope my travel doesn't get delayed then hurry up and do all the bullshit that comes with going to funerals like you know the the wakes and all that shit to then okay well now i'm going back to my life and then i'm going right back to work so at what point do you have to grieve in any of that you don't until another time where then it fucking wallops you out of nowhere yeah, it's crazy. I, I overheard a conversation with a, a coworker that was a asking for information about potentially having to go to a funeral. And it's funny. And the boss was totally cool about it. He's like, he's like, yeah, just don't worry about it, man. Just go take the time you need, whatever. He's like, well, I was looking through the manual and it's crazy, though, how they quantify which deaths are legitimate <laughs> and which ones are, are not legitimate. Like, uh, completely, you know, if you if you have a random aunt that you that you've only met once in your entire life passes away, that you get paid time off for. But uh, if your best friend who you've known since you were you know seven, all of a sudden, you know, like, well, that doesn't necessarily count because it was you know not covered under you know our strict guidelines. I left a job because of that. Uh, coincidentally, two people that live with me in this house, uh, one was my boss's son and he passed away randomly and the whole whole sam's club not only just our store but all of them in the in the market uh all got to take time off and go to his funeral in that same time uh my closer friend who i lived with and had just moved out of here went missing they ended up finding him he was had passed away and i was i was outside of family myself and my other roommate that was his ex-girlfriend were the only ones invited to the funeral and I told my work that I was going and they're like, was well, not covered. And so therefore you would have to take, you know, da, 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 and you don't have time to take and it's not covered and you can't. And I was like, the fuck I can't like, how are you going to tell me, how are you going to value one life over another one? They don't mean anything to you, but they mean the world to me. Like, I think that's absolutely just insane to think about of just how, how companies value people or don't boil frogs. Exactly. And I was like, it has to come back around to Alexis on fire at some point, right? Or it doesn't have to. Man, I like how these conversations build and they grow and they go 
into a few different places. But yeah, I mean, it actually does really with boiled frogs. You don't even really notice, I think, until it's too late how deep in you are on stuff like that. You know, but that, that was my favorite part of the beginning of that song. It's like one year from retirement and he's up for review. Like, really? Yep. You're going to sit down and give me my yearly review or whatever and, and tell me, hey, man, here's the thing. Five's as high as you go, but nobody gets a five. So in order to please my boss, I'm going to give you a 3.5. You're like, oh, is there anything you can do? No, 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 man. In my personal opinion, you exceed my expectations. Anyway, that's a whole different conversation for a different <laughs> night. John. Thank you so much, man. This is obviously not the last time you guys are going to hear from John. I'm going to be pulling John in a lot on things. And as of the recording of this, I know I've got one uh, with Jeff. So you guys are definitely going to experience the regular cast of characters uh, (laughs) on this podcast, people that you already know and have uh, sort of heard me talk to. And we're going to get into some deep stuff. And that's that's sort of the point of this, you know. But I think that the harder thing to talk about sometimes is how these records affected us. So that's more or less going to be the focus of the show sort of going forward. And it's funny because I told rants in the at the drive-in episode that I wasn't going to do a manifesto at the, (laughs) at the end of every episode, but here, here we are. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of DFT's dungeon about Crisis by Alexis on Fire. I really enjoyed having this conversation with John. We talked about a lot of things that him and I actually haven't talked about off mic before, and so it was it was fun to sort of get in there and see how we're both feeling about a variety of different topics. I will definitely be spending more time with Crisis in the future, so uh, I may even talk about it again uh, once I've had a little bit more time to let it uh, wash over me and some time to have lived with it. Where I live right now is our Discord server. The DFT Dungeon Discord server is always hopping. Uh, We talk about all kinds of stuff in there. And uh, it's a lot of fun, and I spend most of my time there. I am on social media. Uh, There'll be links to the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram. We'll all be in the show notes of this episode. And you can always email me directly at dftdungeon at gmail.com. But uh, if, you, if you just want to chat and hang and talk about music and talk about video games and movies and share memes and all that, we're doing all that in the Discord server. There's going to be a link to the Discord server in the show notes of this episode. I would highly encourage you to check it out. There's a lot of good people there and a lot of good discussion that uh, it's kind of become a little bit of a safe haven for me uh, versus having to sort of navigate my way through public social media. So make sure you guys are checking that out, and I will see you all on the next episode.